This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Noah Leach, news editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Like it or not, food plays a central role in all of our lives. It's so important that whole societies and economies have formed around it, wars are fought over it, and now the way we consume it is having profound impacts on the planet. So just how stable are the food systems on which most of us depend? To talk about food security, I'm joined today by Professor Tim Benton, Research Director at Chatham House, who has been working on issues in food, ecology, biodiversity and sustainability for over 30 years. We humans depend on the Earth's natural resources for our very existence, so it's vital that we take as good care of them as we can. However, it's abundantly clear that the environment isn't in great shape at the moment. In this special six-part series, we explore the different factors affecting the sustainability of our natural resources, investigate what their current state is, and discuss what we could be doing to take better care of them. Food is a fundamental part of everyone's lives, and there's so much we don't think about or know about when it comes to global food systems and how the food on our plate actually gets there. And many of us take that for granted, but many people across the world don't have that luxury at all. So, Professor Tim Benton, what does it actually mean to be food secure? Yeah, that's a very good question. Security, in this sense, means about having a secure supply of food. So, in reality, that means being able to eat when you're hungry, to be able to buy the food that you need. In the technical definition, it's about all people at all times having access to foods that can enhance their health and they can therefore 
not be hungry and be um, fit and healthy throughout their lives and be able to uh, live a fulfilled life and access the food that is culturally appropriate. So, you know, obviously different people in different parts of the world have different needs for food. So there isn't a kind of a one-size-fits-all diet, but to be food secure means being able to eat when you're hungry effectively. Just in the last year, we've seen how fragile our food systems can be when faced with various issues, such as human conflict, so sunflower production in Ukraine slowing down because of Russia's invasion, or vegetables like tomatoes and cucumbers being taken off the shelves earlier this year because of crop failure in the Mediterranean, or even the ongoing bird flu crisis taking eggs off the shelves. Are these issues actually on the rise, or are we just too used to having everything available all the time? Yes, to both. So over the last 50 or 60 years, we have got increasingly a global food system so that a lot of what we eat has a set of common ingredients that relate to a relatively small handful of crops that are grown in different places in the world. So starch from wheat and maize, sugar from sugarcane, largely from uh, Latin America, vegetable oil, which is uh, very often related to palm oil from Indonesia, Malaysia, you know, all of those sorts of things. Chocolate, in the case of a chocolate biscuit, would come from the tropics. We've just got used to eating food that comes from very long and complex supply chains. And at the same time, because of wanting to eat food more cheaply, the whole food system has become more and more efficient. And by becoming efficient, it is also becoming more fragile for when shocks happen. And the third point of this is that as the world becomes more globally connected, and as we drive climate change, so that its effects are becoming more, you know, more feelable, more palpable, shocks to the supply chain through production or transport logistics or other things become much more frequent and over time looking ahead they'll become more frequent and more severe. So our expectation that we will always be able to have the same food without any disruption to the whole system and the supply chains is, you know, in the future is going to be much more tested than it has been in the last year. And, you know, in the last 2022-23, as you point out, we've had Ukraine, we've had uh, climate impacts, we've had supply chain disruptions coming on the back of COVID and new pests and diseases are the sorts of things that climate change is also going to make more likely because of their impacts on ecological processes and so on. So you can see all of these things coming together now in a way that they haven't 10 years ago or 20 years ago where there was more redundancy, more buffering capacity within the food system as a whole because it was less efficient. So efficiency in globalisation and the globalisation itself has led to a system that is quite fragile. And when things go wrong, we suddenly notice. Yeah. And as you mentioned there, one of those things that might go wrong is climate change. And uh, a huge part of that is the increased likelihood of ever hotter and more frequent heat waves. So how much are they likely to damage our food supply and to what extent? Yeah, well, it's interesting that you kind of pick up on heat waves. I mean, there are many ways that climate change can impact on our supply of food. Uh, On the production side, we've got increasing heat and drought. And those two things sometimes work together and sometimes work separately. So obviously, as droughts happen, crops find it difficult to grow. But also, 
livestock can't forage because the forage is reduced, so it impacts on animals too. Heat will affect the ability of flowers to set seed or flower and therefore whether or not they're productive. Heat can also stress animals uh, outside or in barns. You know, intensive livestock systems are often inside these days and in the middle of a 40 degree heat wave. They're not often air conditioned, as you can imagine. But of course, floods can affect food production systems. All sorts of things can affect the logistics of the food system. So one of the major commodity crops in the world is maize. And the centre of production is really the Midwest. And the majority of the grain that comes out of the Midwest in the United States comes down the Mississippi River. And of course, on barges coming down the Mississippi River. And if that dries out and barges can't flow, there isn't any other means of getting uh, the grain to ports. Very big storms can impact port infrastructure, disrupting the global supply chains. And of course, pests and diseases can impact on people or they can impact on the production side. And as we saw during COVID, outbreaks of COVID led to the shutting of meat processing plants and themselves led to shortfalls in meat production in some parts of the world. So however you look at it, whether it's heat or drought or unusual cold snaps, even as the uh, climate change impacts, you know, Many areas are getting hotter, but sometimes cold air is pulled down from the north, from the Arctic, and, uh, and can create, create conditions that disrupt. There are literally thousands of ways that climate change can impact on our food system and lead to the sorts of issues that we've been seeing over the last few years. What current and future research technology and innovations in chemistry uh, and in other scientific fields could help to make our food system more secure? That's a really difficult question to answer, not because there aren't answers to it, but because if you think about growing food in Malawi, or if you think about growing soya in very large scale in Brazil, or wheat in Europe, or livestock systems in China, or whatever, there are many, many, many different local contexts where innovation can help. There's also, and I'll come back to the question of chemistry in a minute, there are also, of course, issues to do with innovation necessary to track food across borders and ensure its authenticity to avoid the situation where high-value foods are adulterated, substituted with low-value foods, leading to food safety issues. There are all sorts of issues about how you can monitor the spread of contaminants or fungal pathogens or something like that in grain as it crosses borders and comes into countries for processing. There are all sorts of issues around the science of whether or not different people react differently to different supplies of calories and nutrients and the issue of what makes a healthy diet for a young person or an old person or a person that's infirm and the whole kind of personalised medicine nature of food and tracking food relative to your, your genetics and what would make an optimal diet. So the science behind how to do this well is really, really, really broad. And it's not just chemical science, it's also biological science, you know, the way that the soil fertility is affected by the microbes and fungi in the soil and what supplies of nutrients that they might need. It's not just a chemical question, it's a biological question. How do you preserve biodiversity in agricultural landscapes? You know, what is the precise formulation of food 
you know, how do you do sustainability in different farming systems? You know, lots and lots of lots of science questions. And so lots of space for innovation. In the particular question of chemistry, I think we are at a point where, given that the food system is responsible for driving climate change, about a third of greenhouse gases come from the food system. And given that the food system is also responsible for about 70 to 80% of biodiversity loss on a global basis, and given that the food system collectively is also the number one polluter on a global basis, there is a huge need to get away from highly intensive chemically based agriculture in the sense of synthetic pesticides and synthetic fertilizers, and to think about the chemistry and the biology of low input systems that are more biodiversity friendly, less polluting. And there's a whole lot of need for things like biopesticides that can you know, mimic the behavior of natural pathogens and target specific plant pests rather than generic pesticides that uh, might contribute to the decline of biodiversity and loss of bees and other pollinators and th things like that. There's the need for thinking about how do you integrate plant production systems with the precise use of nutrients and where do those nutrients come from as an alternative to the fossil fuel intensive uh, nitrogen-based fertilizers that we typically use in excess at the moment what does a low input system look like and where would the chemistry of the nutrients what would be the feedstock for that would it be human waste would it be biocompost would it be other forms of biomass you know so th there's a lot around the traditional uses of chemistry, particularly around pest control and fertiliser input, how do we get away from that into a new world where we've got organic in the sense that it's biodiversity friendly, it comes from natural sources, it's not fossil fuel based and uh, all the rest of that. And then the other kind of big issue, other than you know, how do you kind of monitor and evaluate the composition of foods to ensure their authenticity and safety. The other big issue, of course, is around waste. And certainly chemistry plays a very big role in thinking about, well, how do you prolong shelf life? Or how do you come up with biodegradable packaging systems that are not plastic-based coming from fossil fuels? How do you minimize waste in the food chain as a whole? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How can we nurture and protect crops more sustainably than we have been doing? I would start off by asking 
a more generic question about what crops should we be growing. So at the moment, the global food system is based on too few crops. So something like two thirds of the calories come from eight major crops, wheat, rice, maize, palm oil, soya, sugar, barley, and potato. And if you think about most food that you would buy in some sort of packet in a supermarket that is ready for eating or microwavable for eating, it will be made up of some mixture of those major commodities. So the first question is, what should we be growing? And if everybody in the world were to eat five fruit and vegetables a day, we currently only grow about a third of the amount that would be required. So looking ahead, you want to get to the point where we're diversifying our food system and growing more crops and a greater diversity of crops and perhaps growing those crops at a smaller scale. So that's the first point. And then if you're growing crops in a more diverse way in a small scale, you've got scope for thinking about the science of what used to be traditional in agriculture, which is rotations, that you grow different crops at different seasons and you would have one year where you're growing nitrogen-fixing crops, so beans or things like that, that actually clover, that put nitrogen in the ground. So part of the answer to your question is that by having rotations, we can use the biological and chemical processes that have evolved into plants and perhaps put them into different plants. And if we're also doing more mixed, smaller scale, more diverse farming systems, then incorporating some uh, livestock within that rotational system so that they graze and then their manure can be used as an input to the system to avoid further fertilizer. And then you've got also the potential for uh, using green waste within the system as a compost, which might be a cover crop that is there during the winter to protect the soil, and then you plough into the ground or, or harvest it and compost it and put it back on the ground for the next rotation uh, that comes in. So there are, there are many ways of thinking about the nutrient system and the nutrient recycling in different farming systems and what about the pesticide side of things? Because obviously we've got crops that uh, are being sprayed with things that kind of damage the very insects that are integral to kind of making them possible in the first place. So how do you see the sustainability of pesticides going forward? There are many ways, again, that this can be tackled. One is thinking about how you engineer the plants to be pest resistant so can you enhance the genetics of the way that they get attacked or damaged by insects? Another way is thinking about the relationship between plants that are protective and plants that are attractive to pests. So again, thinking about the diversity of farming systems, you know, certainly with small-scale agriculture in, in Africa, the Rothamsted Research in the United Kingdom developed something called push-pull agriculture, which is where you have uh, dummy crops, in a sense, interspersed with the food crops that the pest could attack at will, and the pest preferred those to the plant crops. So you attract pests in, but decoy them with plants that are less important from a food production perspective. 
Then there is the potential for managing the natural enemies of pests within the farmland system. So in the UK, we have a problem with with aphids on, on wheat. But those aphids, in turn, are parasitized by a number of very small wasps. Now, those wasps live in grassy margins and bits of paddock land and so on. And that over time, as we become, become more specialised in having monocultural landscapes, you know, wheat specialist landscapes, those areas where the pests live over winter have declined. So the, uh, the, the, the natural enemies of the pests live over winter have declined. So we've got to the point where we've removed the natural control of the pests from the landscape. So finding ways to do that kind of ecological engineering of the landscape so that there's space for pests to work alongside any any form of, of chemical control in integrate, integrated pest management, it's called. And then lastly, there is the issue of developing new biopesticides, which are based on uh, the natural pathogens or other ways of circumventing the immune system of the pests so that you they are really, really specifically targeted on the pests and then they don't get any kind of uh, secondary insects that might be beneficial. So there are plenty of ways where you can think of which are not about producing traditional chemical pesticides, but nonetheless rely on understanding the biochemistry and chemistry of the systems. You talked before about the diversity of crops being really important for the future and not just having these monocultures. But are there any particularly good kind of species or particularly good food crops that we should be growing into the future? I know uh, you mentioned beans as an important nitrogen fixer, or is that just totally the wrong way of thinking about things? Should we just be going for full diversity? The way I articulate things from a food systems perspective is that we need to tackle the challenge of food security. We need to tackle the challenge that too many people in the world don't have access to a healthy diet. That's in every country of the world. In the poorest countries of the world, people just don't have enough to eat and have micronutrient deficiencies. In countries like ours, people typically don't have a lack of calories, but have a lack of nutrition. So dietary-related ill health is associated with diets that are rich in fat and carbohydrates and and other things and and fast foods, etc. So part of that, that's one of the challenges. Then we got the challenge of biodiversity and how do we restore and protect biodiversity because it's an important part of the resilience of our food system and the sustainability in the long term, natural pests, control, pollinations, uh, uh, and so on. Then we got the challenge of climate change, both adapting to the rigours of climate change, the impacts, the droughts and heat waves and so on, but also reducing the emissions that come from the food system that are driving climate change. And then we've got pollution as a whole. And when you look at all of those challenges together, that requires us to have a food system that's better at protecting people, preserving the environment and providing food in in a different sort of way. So looking ahead, there is a lot of conversation about the need to have protein-rich crops particularly ones that can fix nitrogen. So that's the legume family, peas and beans and lentils and chickpeas and things like that. So that's really important. As I said earlier, fruit and vegetables are really important. But of course, when it comes to coping with climate change, some crops are more resilient than other crops to heat or to flooding or to a drought 
or too cold at different times of year. And there is no kind of, I think, more legumes to allow people to have a more plant-based diet with lots of protein in and to fix nitrogen is a really good thing to be kind of aiming for into the future. And we will certainly need more of them. More fruit and vegetables comes with the challenge that fruit and vegetables are often more dependent on water. And so if you're in a droughty area, perhaps they're more difficult to grow than if you're in an area where there's rich in rainfall. So it does come down to what is appropriate for the place that we're thinking of. But in general, from a resilience perspective, given that the climate change is going to have multiple uh, impacts everywhere, the greater the diversity, the more resilient the system will be. So I think there is a kind of generic need to increase the range of what we grow and how we grow it. And as I said earlier, the more we integrate diverse farming systems, the more we build sustainability and resilience into the system, because it's don't put all your eggs in one basket kind of thinking that you can build a more sustainable system, you can fix your nitrogen, you can preserve biodiversity, you can encourage the right sort of biodiversity in a diverse system in a way that you can't in a very large landscape monoculture. So would a shift away from large supermarkets towards smaller scale food systems like community food systems help to diversify our food sources? And would that even help? Yeah, I mean, that will certainly play a role. I mean, more local systems are not necessarily more sustainable because actually the environmental impact largely comes from where it's produced and what is produced rather than how close it is produced to you. I think the scale issue is important because in a sense, we have designed this food system, which is very specialised on a very few crops grown at very large scale in very different parts of the world. And these globalised, fragile, interconnected supply chains that we're in the situation that because we've done that really, really, really efficiently over the last 20, 30 years, it has become you know, the production of grain at such scale and volume has reduced its price. So it's become economically rational, both to, in many parts of the world, for people to buy food and waste it. It's become economically rational for people who are surrounded by snacky foods all the time to overeat. And it's become economically rational to feed human-type food to animals to increase the volume of production of livestock. And a statistic across Europe, now over 60% of the grains that are grown in Europe are fed to livestock. So actually, if we wasted less food, if we changed the composition of our diets a bit and ate less meat, and if we ate the right amount of food for our health rather than overate, that would allow us to produce less food. And if we can produce less food, we can do it in a more sustainable way without so many chemical inputs. So from a food systems approach, part of the answer is about how we change our diets to deliver on the objective to make people healthier. That allows us to use our land in different ways and that allows us to farm in different ways, which requires different kinds of technical innovation to deliver a different farming system. But they all kind of, all of the pieces fit together and point in a certain direction. So with our own diets then, how can we make 
changes to our personal lifestyle and what we cook and eat and and make for our friends and family uh, to help with this and to make our food systems more resilient. There's a an assumption in your question that by changing our habits from consumption, we change the market, which is something that I think is questionable. The biggest agency I think we have in changing the food system is to encourage debate in politics about the food system. So instead of seeing people as consumers and using consumer power to change the system, seeing consumers as citizens and saying to government, no, we want to regulate better. We want the market to work better, to be more sustainable. So as a person, as a citizen, encourage family and friends to vote for politicians so they start competing to drive climate action and sustainability. As a consumer, from a health perspective and from a sustainability perspective, I think the advice points in a similar sort of way that eating more fruit and vegetables, a more plant-based diet, where meat is not something that you eat every day, eating more whole grains, eating less highly processed, highly packaged foods with all the plastic that comes with it and all the calories and salt and preservatives that are inside the food. All of those things act in a way as small agents of change to the system as a whole, but they're not as powerful probably in the long run as people voting for politicians to get the food system right. Could you also talk about what we can do in terms of changing our lifestyle when it comes to wasting what we've bought and what we don't eat? Absolutely. Any form of waste means that resources are going into producing it, resources are going into processing, packaging it, transporting it, and then resources are going into wasting it. And something like, and it depends on the place and it depends on the commodity, something like a third of food that is produced is wasted or lost throughout the food system. So anything that can be done to reduce that is a good thing. So so that's using leftovers from meals at home. That's meal planning so that you don't just buy, uh, or your parents don't buy a whole lot of food, put it in the fridge, go out for a couple of nights, come back on a Friday evening before the next delivery from the supermarket and empty out the fridge and find all sorts of slimy things in the back. You know, it's all of that proper portion control. So you're eating the right amount of food. You're not buying twice as much food as you need and so on. So there's lots of scope for thinking about how you do that. And then if you've got a garden, particularly vegetable waste, uncooked, composting that and using that to fertilize your garden rather than buying peat from a garden centre to put on your roses or whatever it might be is, is another important thing. If about a third of the food in the world is wasted, and at the moment there are 900 million people who aren't getting enough food to eat, several billion who can't afford a healthy diet, the more we consume it, economically consume it, buy it and waste it, and the more people at the other end of the food chain go hungry, then that is unethical, immoral, however you want to phrase it. That shows that the food system is not working. And if the emissions from food waste you know, this is an old stat now and probably needs updating. But if the emissions from food waste were a country, they would be second or third in the list of all countries, uh, uh, polluting countries from a global greenhouse gas perspective. And so the scale of the issue 
whether it's in the UK or globally, is absolutely huge. And, you know, the, the natural environment is so precious and so many people are not having access to the right amounts of food. There is something seriously wrong with the food system where it is so easy to waste food and all of those resources and all of those impacts have then gone to waste, literally. And so we have uh, seen in recent years the rise of growing technologies that can help to reduce the need for land conversion. So things like hydroponics and vertical farming and also kind of innovations in plant-based meats, uh, if you can call them that. So what current research coming up in the future are you excited about that you think could make a difference? Well, there's there's a lot. Uh, it's difficult uh, looking ahead and this has been true through the history of innovation, to say what will be the most exciting innovation if it's adopted at scale. But certainly alternative proteins, as the kind of generic name is, whether it's lab-grown meat or whether it's industrial biotechnologically grown meat, such as things like corn or other artificial meats that are effectively made through industrial processes, or whether it is plant-based proteins which are repurposed as meat-like analogues. All of those, I think, are important, perhaps, especially in the short term, in helping people eat less meat and go towards more plant-based diets. I really like uh, vertical farming and local food production systems because, in a way, not that they will solve the food security needs of the world, in the way if people see food being grown locally, it helps them to think about the resources that go into it and respect the food for the resources that have gone into it because the price that we pay for food is often less than the total cost when you build in the environmental costs and the healthcare costs and all the rest of that. So food waste, I think, is related to many urban dwellers getting divorced from production of food. So anything that stimulates food growing in the local environment... I think, you know, if you have an urban vertical farm and people go in and pick their own lettuce or something, they're much li less likely to put it in a fridge and throw it away later, uh, just like having an allotment or vegetable garden of your own. If you've slaved over your carrots, even if you have a glut of carrots, you tend to find ways of eating, eating your carrots rather than throwing them away. So there's lots in that. And then, of course, huge amounts of thinking about some of the things we talked about earlier, the science rotations, what crops should we, we grow? How can we make them climate and pest resilient? How can we reduce the emissions from agriculture in the narrow sense and also the broad sense in the narrow sense, you know, per crop, but also from the system as a whole? What can we do about issues around food authenticity and using new ways of tracking food across supply chains? How can we build a system that is resilient to the shocks? How can we conserve water within farming systems, including in within soils? How can we build up soil fertility? You know, there's just so many things. The use of robotics, robotics to pick fruit and vegetables, robotics to uh, ensure that, you know, small autonomous vehicles that have a laser instead of a pesticide and with a camera go around recognising 
weeds and zapping them with a laser to kill them rather than zapping them with a pesticide. You know, there's, there's just so much that is exciting in the space, let alone thinking about food formulation and 3D printing of food and, you know, different ways of delivering food to people and the, the, the personalization of diets according to your genetics and what makes a healthy diet for somebody who's old and overweight versus somebody who's young and growing. You know, all of those sorts of things around the jazz of food production. You know, there's just so much. You've been listening to Professor Tim Benton telling us about the future of food security. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius, brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. Buy the latest issue of Science Focus in-store or visit us at sciencefocus.com. 